Hello everybody, and welcome to Go Forth, a music education talk show. I'm Summer. And I'm Owen, and today we have an interview with Dr. Stephen Paparo, where he talks about his journey in music education and the Feldenkrais Method. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Go Forth, the music education show based in the Sardar Conservatory of Music at Gettysburg College. I have the pleasure to welcome Dr. Paparo to the show today. How are you? I am doing well. How are you, Logan? I'm doing very well on this fine morning. I wanted to start the show off and give you the opportunity to explain how you got into music. When did you start making music? Well, I think my initial response to that question is I started when I started taking piano lessons, and that was at age seven. But I actually think that when did I start making music? I think I had, or I'm sure that I had an amazing elementary music teacher that probably had much more of an impact on me than I had originally um, thought at the time. When I look back over the years, I think some of the things that we did in elementary music class were quite sophisticated musically. We learned how to read music. We learned class about classical music. It was such a great experience and I always felt very comfortable in her classroom. And and also, she actually was the first teacher that invited me to accompany the choir. When I was in fourth grade, she, she knew that I was taking piano lessons and she invited me to do that. And so I took the piece of music. It was You Gotta Have Heart from the musical Damn Yankees. And I took it to my piano teacher, and my piano teacher said that it was too hard and that I couldn't play it. And so I went back to my elementary music teacher, and I was, you know, gave her the music back, and I said, no, my piano teacher said it was too hard. And she said, ah, that's crazy. She said, come in during lunch, and she said, and we'll work on it together. And sure enough, I did, and I made my accompanying debut with the elementary choir when I was in fourth grade. <laughs> That's incredible. It's, it's a common theme with the people that I've been interviewing that they've had incredible early age elementary school teachers. And I think it's really important to highlight those, those people because like the general music classroom, uh, well, I'm assuming it was general music classroom, mm -hmm. kind of get looked over when people are thinking about how they got into music where they're like, oh, I in high school band or high school choir, like I was really into it. But, you know, let's not forget about those, those early teachers that made such a big impact in, Absolutely. Our, in our lives. Yeah. And the other cool thing was she also um, recommended me for the Syracuse Children's Choir. It was a community-based children's choir, very much very similar to the, the Gettysburg Children's Choir. And I ended up singing in that for four years, basically my middle school-ish years until my voice changed. And that was also a really great experience. But again, you know, if it started when I was in elementary school and early middle school, for sure. And so when did you start thinking about pursuing music as a profession? Yeah, so I had, um, as I mentioned, started playing piano when I was seven, and I quit a few times along the way and then found a teacher with a better fit. Not that they weren't good teachers, but I don't know that I was all that motivated at certain uh, certain ages to practice. I'm sure everybody can relate to that. I I had always obviously had a very, very strong interest in music and singing and so it seemed like a kind of a no-brainer to go to school and and become a music teacher but my mother was a teacher for her career and i always heard the good the bad and the ugly about teaching 
and I just decided, gee, I don't know if that's really for me. I don't think that that's something that I really want to do. And so I always shied away from it. And it wasn't until junior year where I thought, all right, well, I've really got to figure out what I, I'm going to do. But so I applied to music schools my senior year. I auditioned at several music schools as a piano major, but I also applied to a completely different school as a major in international relations with a minor in French. So I had sort of my bases covered in case, you know, this whole music thing didn't work out at that point, you know, that I was going to, I don't know what I was th thought that I would go and do, but I loved French and I thought the idea of, you know, traveling and doing something business related would be very, very cool and, you know, interesting to me. But needless to say, I don't know, because I never ended up pursuing that. <laughs> yeah, so it's obviously you, you got accepted into the conservatory. Where has that taken you in life so far? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when I first started, I sort of actually have a little bit of a detour here, but it's a, it's a really important part of the story in that um, when I went to Ithaca College as a piano major, between my freshman and sophomore years, I actually injured myself playing the piano from too many hours of playing rehearsals for community music musical theater during the summertime. And the beginning of my sophomore year, I returned to school and I couldn't play the piano because I had developed tendonitis and carpal tunnel symptoms in my left hand, wrist, arm. And it got so bad eventually that I had pain on the entire left side of my body for quite a long time, for months. And so that, that kind of derailed my initial thought to become a collaborative pianist. I loved accompanying, as I mentioned, the, the first story I started when I was in fourth grade and continued on all throughout middle school, high school, and even did that my freshman year of college and was quite good at it. And I thought, this is really great. But unfortunately, because that that happened, um, I actually had to put piano playing on hold for well over a year and it kind of forced me to reevaluate what I wanted to do and of course I had always sung in a choral setting but never really taken a you know voice lessons officially but so then I thought well I'll audition for voice and see if I can you know continue on and finish my you know degree. At the exact same time my first semester during my sophomore year I was in elementary methods, elementary music methods with, it was taught by Verna Brummett and Dr. Brummett was like the inspiration at the right, absolute right time that I needed because I was really, I was just so like beside myself and I was so upset that like I couldn't pursue what I wanted to do. And then I started taking this class and by the end of the semester, I was just so excited about the idea of becoming a, a music teacher and creating lessons where we can, you know, where we, we teach and we learn and, and the way that she just introduced material and we made music in class. And I just thought, oh my gosh, it all just kind of came together in that particular semester for me. And, and at that point, I wasn't even sure like what instrument I was going to play or what, you know, what I was going to do. But I just thought, oh my gosh. It, all the pieces just kind of fell into place at that point. That's incredible. From taking such a difficult experience and turning it, you mentioned before that you were shying away from becoming a teacher because you had seen how hard it is, if I'm getting that right, or how challenging it is, I might say. And then into in your sophomore year of college, having that experience, that's, that's, that's really inspiring. 
So I know that you are a practitioner of the Feldenkrais method. I'm I'm wondering if that experience of losing the capacity in your in your arms to play the piano had any connection to your your involvement in the Feldenkrais method. Yes, absolutely. My piano teacher at the time, I think I had told him that I was going to end up having surgery because one of the hand and wrist specialists suggested that I, if I had surgery that that would fix everything and you know I could go on with playing and whatnot. And my piano teacher at the time actually had some great advice. He said, you know, before you go down that path, why don't you go and see Carol McCamus? She was a voice professor at Ithaca College, and she also was a Feldenkrais practitioner. And by the way, just for um, people who are listening, the Feldenkrais is spelled F-E-L-D-E-N-K-R-A-I-S, and it is named for Dr. Moshe Feldenkrais, who created the method, which I can talk a little bit about in just a sec. But I didn't know what it was, and I was in pain, and I didn't know what else to do. And my piano teacher said, well, you know, what have you got to lose? So I said, okay. So I knocked on uh, Professor McCamus's door, and I introduced myself, and I just said, you know, could you help me? And she said, sure. And a very long story short, um, I started working with her one-on-one -on -one for Feldenkrais lessons, and after three lessons, I was back to playing the piano with no pain and probably better than I ever had. And it made such an impression on me that I thought, I, I've got to know more about what this is. I don't understand it. This is so crazy. And I don't know why it just like seemingly fixed everything overnight. Now, it took me years to really totally overcome the, you know, the tendencies, the way that I use myself, which created the injury in the first place. And I think that's what a lot of, or how a lot of musicians in particular come to things like the Alexander Technique, Feldenkrais Method, is because either they're injured and they want to you know, get better so that they can play again, or they want to somehow improve their performance. And those are two kind of specific applications for the Feldenkrais method for musicians. Yeah, could you expand on what the Feldenkrais method is? What what would maybe your lessons look like or what a typical Feldenkrais lesson would look like? Sure, that's a great question. I'm happy to talk about that. The Feldenkrais method in a nutshell, it basically is an approach to developing awareness. Awareness of, of how we move and function in the world. It has nothing specifically to do with music, but it has everything to do with how human beings learn. And it is an experiential learning process that is the exact same kind of learning process that we all went through when we were babies. We learned to roll over and to crawl and to sit and to stand and run and skip and all of those things we, may, we might say organically, and I'm putting that into air quotes, in that we didn't have any teacher, we didn't have any book that we read, our parents didn't explain to us verbally how we roll over or how we stand or how we do any of these things. We learned through felt bodily experience. And we learn through trial and error, we learn by falling over, we learn by trying out different variations, and it's all the interesting part is that it's all 
for babies, it's all relative to their environment because they're curious, because they want to look, they, they, they react to something. So they, they turn, they look, they see. And then before you know it, they, they find themselves rolling over and they discover something new. And so um, Dr. Feldenkrais was really quite brilliant in that he was able to create an approach that could take people of any age through the same learning process that we did when we were babies. And he created two different modalities, if you will. And one is that I mentioned earlier, a one on one lesson. And that is called functional integration. And basically, the teacher or the practitioner will physically move the student to give them their their body and their brain, a new idea about well, one, how they're moving to begin with, and then introduce new possibilities that may not have been on people's radar. The other um, uh, modality is called awareness through movement. And that basically is a group class. It is a verbally guided lesson. And the teacher or the practitioner will lead people through a series, a sequential movement series, and ask them to pay attention to, to certain things so that they their brain can basically pick up the sensory information that sort of is contained as a result of the particular lesson and the experience. So you did a Feldenkrais lesson yesterday, right? Yes, I did. It was a it was a notable experience. I had never really paid attention to my body in in that hyper specific of a way. So you've touched on your experience and how the method helped you become a better musician. How can a teacher apply this method to help their students in the music classroom? Well, my first recommendation would be for for people to have experiences in the Feldenkrais method. So it's not something that you could just like wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to do this with my students. But there are a number of things that that teachers can do, and they may seem pretty obvious or maybe things that we overlook, maybe actually not very obvious because there may be some things that we actually do, but um, we don't necessarily put the attention or the focus on that. So. Like I said, my first recommendation would be for people to, you know, basically try out the Feldenkrais method and, and like you said, you know, have that experience so that at least you have a, to begin a starting point, some place to begin, and you can first understand your own experience, your, your own internal experience, and then that will also give you ideas about how you can help other students when you see them struggling with certain things that maybe you understand in your own body. But in general, I think that music educators, I don't think that we as a profession yet have embraced the idea that students are embodied beings and that we think and sense and feel and act as an integrated whole. And that directly impacts the way that we play, in quotes, our instrument. So if you're a singer, your body is your instrument and you have to be able to pay attention to what's going on internally because there's no button to put press there's no string to to strum or pluck or what have you or key to push it all has to be done based on our mind body connection and for singers for example who are really good at that they're going to progress more quickly in figuring out their own singing technique and yet everybody regardless we all have our own sort of black holes and places where we struggle and so 
by, by bringing attention to our experience, that can be a pathway forward to kind of circumvent any of the challenge that we might be having. Yeah, totally. It's really important. I like how you're bringing light to how all music starts with the body, even in instruments where you might not immediately think so, like with percussion and even piano, which you played, right? And having that mind-body connection helped you become a better piano player. It's not just about pressing the key. It's about pressing the key the right way and the healthy way. Thank you for that answer. That was very nice. So I wanted to switch topics to some of your research into sexual identity in the music classroom. In your article, Negotiating Sexual Identity, Experiences of Two Gay and Lesbian Pre-Service Music Teachers, you say that pre-service teachers should be equipped with practical strategies on what to do when a student comes out and how to deal with insensitive comments in the classroom. Could you speak onto what some of these practical strategies are to help in these situations? I think that's a really great question. Thank you for asking it. I think that for the most part, it's safe to say that everybody should assume if you're teaching, maybe at least in a public school, that somebody will come out to you as a teacher at some point in your career. And I don't think that it is uh, if it happens, I think it's a when it happens. And so I think that everybody should be prepared to handle that accordingly. And one of the things that I've learned, I participated in a training here at UMass, my, my institution, as a part of the Stonewall Center. And one of the things that they have suggested in their sort of teacher training and counselor training that I was a part of, when students come out to you is to ask what that means to them. So they may not use a, a term that you're familiar with, and so you might want, you might not know what it is exactly that they're telling you. So if a student comes out and says, I'm queer, what does that mean? Right? So, and, and, and we might have an understanding of what queer means, but that student may have a particular understanding of what that means. And so I think it's really important. The first step is, is to say something like, that's really great. Thank you for sharing that with me. Tell me, what does that mean to you? The second thing that I think is really, really important that teachers ask is, have you told your parents? Or have you told a parent? Or have you, have you told a trusted adult? I think that it's a little tricky in that teachers can't assume the responsibility of being the only person in the child's world. And the student may say, well, no, I haven't yet. But or they, they say, no, my parents, you know, wouldn't accept me or there would be, you know. So I think the next important thing is to make sure that that student is connected to, to the appropriate support. So like a school counselor or social worker, because we're not really trained to be counselors or psychiatrists or psychologists or whatever. I mean, we're trained to be music teachers. And so while we can offer support, while we can create you know, a safe space in our classroom while we can say, you know, everybody's accepted here. I think that there's a very fine line that we have to tread. And I think especially if this is the first time that somebody comes out to a teacher, they may feel really overwhelmed and not know what to do in the situation. So those are like my sort of my three step 
process, if you will. You know, what does it mean to you? And certainly, you know, be supportive and, you know, I guess maybe congratulatory or affirming of the student. Um, you know, ask them if they told their parent or guardian or a trusted adult, and then refer them to another adult that can really help anything that you know, they may need, that their parents may need. I mean, you don't really can't assume what that is. And you can say, I'm here to be supportive of you and here are the ways that I can be supportive of you. But then there are a lot of other things that you might need that I'm really not able to do because that's not my area of expertise. And I think that that's really totally acceptable to say. Yeah, that's those are really wise points to follow. And I think a lot of music teachers, since they're so used to being like the king or queen of the castle, um, they think they can take on everything, but it's, you know, it, maybe it's not the best idea to take on everything, especially when you're dealing with someone else. Um, so thank you for those. That was great. I was wondering if you could talk about your experience, LGBTQ inclusivity from the time where you taught middle and high school and maybe how that the culture around that has changed in the years since. I taught grades 7 through 12, junior high and high school in my district from 1998 to 2008. So it was a one decade. And I think that in certain places, things have really changed in some school districts. And I think in other places, maybe not that much has changed. But um, we're now in 2020. And when I look back, I think that my school district at the time was just sort of at the beginning of all of this. So for example, one of my students who was enrolled in choir and her good friend, they wanted to start, and again, back in the day, a gay and straight alliance. And they approached the principal and the principal told them no and said that that was too narrow a topic and encouraged them to create more of like a diversity club where they could honor different identities throughout the year, which they did. And I think now the that group has actually changed into a gender and sexuality alliance or a new one, a different one has begun and been started. So it's just, I feel like in, in this particular district, things have changed a great deal. Um, very few students were out at the time, although I obviously did have students who were out, who came out to me. And I my focus at that time was to, you know, be there for my students and basically, you know, help out in terms of whatever I could. In terms of my own classroom, I always had a safe space sticker. You know, I talked about that everybody is welcome here. We refrain from negative commenting and basically try to honor the diversity of the students that I had. Those are really some of the things that, that I, I did. When the diversity club kind of got off the ground, they did have some meetings with they invited faculty members, which I attended, and they had different events throughout the year that I went to to show my support. So I feel like it was a very, very different time then particularly. But even after I left teaching, one of my former students was hired to replace me and I kept very much in touch with her. And basically two years after I was gone, there was a student who was gender fluid and some days would present as a male, some days present as a female and sang in her choir uh, in the bass section and sometimes looked like presenting as a part of the bass section and, and sometimes not. And that was just a point of diversity of change in the very short few years since I had been gone there. So, and now they have a very vibrant 
Gender and Sexuality Alliance, and one of my former colleagues and friends is the is the is the advisor of that. So they've got one at the junior high, one at the high school too. Yeah, it's great to hear that we're going toward a more inclusive kind of society or culture, and in no small part because of your actions, I'm sure. Um, just a small, you know, safe space, open, inclu uh, open inclusivity, and uh, I think the idea that your your former student came back and continued those beliefs is is a real testament to that. So, awesome. Uh, I want to close off the interview by asking you what projects you're working on next. What do you have in the oven, so to speak? <laughs> Great question. I have basically a couple of projects that have been on my back burner for a while that I'm trying to finish up and get out, out the door. One is a Feldenkrais singer study focusing on the experiences of collegiate music education majors who participated in Feldenkrais classes. So that's hopefully will help again to give us some idea about how somatic education can inform what we do in the classroom and thinking about the potential impact of that on future teachers. Another study that's kind of on my back burner that I'm looking forward to working on immediately next is circle singing. And that is from my experience of going to the Omega Institute with Bobby McFerrin and learning how to do vocal improvisation with him and his team of experts. Basically um, interviewed participants in that to explore their experiences and to kind of delve into the music making culture of circle singing, which is very, very different than a typical ensemble culture that we're familiar with. And again, I'm hoping that that will shed some light on some ways that we can incorporate both improvisation and collaboration and creativity into kind of everyday music classrooms. And then last but not least, kind of on the horizon is some kind of a book infusing my background in with the Feldenkrais method in the choral rehearsal for singers. Um, as you can imagine, I've been doing this for a long time now since I started doing that when I was about 19 years old and been a practitioner um, for a number of years since 2006. And I've infused a lot of Feldenkrais approaches in terms of what I do in the choral rehearsal. And I'd like to make that available to other people so that they can understand what the approach is and have some lessons that they can do with their students and work on developing vocal skills and improving, you know, ensemble and those sorts of things. So that's, that's what's in the works. All very exciting stuff. And I think everyone should be on the lookout for that work coming out. I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. It's it's so wonderful to have you in class and to be able to have a little chat with you afterward as well. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Logan. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this week's Coffee Talk with Dr. Stephen Paparo. To listen to the extended version featuring our own students discussing medium as the message, as well as methods courses here at Gettysburg College. Check us out wherever you listen to podcasts at Go Forth, a music education talk show. Join us next week for another Coffee Talk segment. We hope to see you then, but until next time, go forth and change the world.